Good afternoon. Welcome. My name is Thea Brook-Knight. I'm the Associate Director for Financial Regulation Studies here at the Cato Institute. Um, I also have the pleasure of moderating this afternoon's discussion. National crises tend to result in national legislation. In recent memory, 9-11 brought us the Patriot Act, Enron's collapse garnered Sarbanes-Oxley, and the recent financial crisis brought forth Dodd-Frank. Of course, this urge to legislate in the face of turmoil is nothing new. The most sweeping financial legislation in our country's history, the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, were products of the Great Depression. While crises may sometimes expose regulatory weaknesses, the political climate post-crisis is rarely conducive to thoughtful, carefully circumscribed lawmaking. Instead, legislators, often spurred by, on by the people eager for Congress to do something, are rewarded for pushing through massive new laws. A crisis almost by definition is a rare, acute event. Given their rarity, crises are likely to be followed by periods of relative calm. This makes it easy for lawmakers to point to the effectiveness of their own handiwork in warding off more crises, despite the fact that a new crisis was unlikely to occur no matter what the lawmaker did or did not do. It is essential, then, that those outside the political system who are not subject to the same pressures and rewards as our lawmakers take a step back and examine these post-crisis behemoths and the crises that produce them. The initial, and I admit, $700 billion question is what caused the crisis? Was it due to at all to weaknesses in existing regulation? If so, does the new regulation address these weaknesses? Where is the new regulation redundant, ineffective, or otherwise poorly suited to its stated goals? Are there ways to prune back the regulation post hoc? Today, we are fortunate to have with us two noted experts in the field of financial and bank regulation to discuss these and related questions. Our first speaker, Paul Mahoney, is the Dean of the University of Virginia Law School, where he is also the Arnold H. Leon Professor of Law and a David and Mary Harrison Distinguished Professor. His research interests include securities regulation, law and economic development, corporate finance, financial derivatives, and contracts. He has published widely in law reviews and peer-reviewed finance and law and economics journals. Most recently, he published a book, Wasting a Crisis, Why Securities Regulation Fails, that provides a thoughtful examination not only of the regulation that followed the Great Recession, but also of the regulation, regulatory response to the Great Depression. Our second speaker, Heidi Schooner, is also a legal academic. She is a professor of law at the Catholic University here in Washington, where she focuses her scholarship on the domestic and international challenges in regulating the financial services industry. She has served as a consultant to the International Monetary Fund and to various federal and state agencies. As a practicing attorney, she served as acting general counsel of First American Metro Corporation, a bank holding company, and in the general counsel's office of the Securities and Exchange Commission. I want to thank both Paul and Heidi for joining us today. And I look forward to hearing your remarks. Paul? Thank you, and, and thank all of you for um, being here. Um, so most major securities reforms in the United States and indeed elsewhere share two important characteristics. 
They're typically adopted in the aftermath of a stock market crash. And they're also publicly justified by what I, in, in uh, the book, call a market failure narrative, which contains three key claims. First, that misbehavior by uh, securities issuers, traders, or financial intermediaries caused the crash. Second, that a lack of regulation permitted the misbehavior. And third, that the reforms will prevent a repetition of the problem. The key claims in my book are that these narratives are usually wrong, and the resulting reforms typically curtail competition within the most directly affected segments of the regulated industry, with modest offsetting benefits to investors. Accordingly, Congress and regulators in the future should avoid the temptation to overhaul financial regulation in the immediate aftermath of a crisis. I try to illustrate these points with multiple examples, starting with the first significant securities regulatory statute in England uh, enacted in 1697 after the 1696 run on the Bank of England and ending with Dodd-Frank. But most of my examples uh, are drawn from the New Deal securities reforms, and I'm going to uh, ask your indulgence as I talk about a few of those today. And I chose these largely because they are widely seen as canonical examples of good regulation. Generations of law, business, economics, history, and political science students have learned that the New Deal reforms uh, saved capitalism from itself by introducing greater transparency and fairness into previously anarchic securities markets. As I argue at length in the book, and will try to show briefly today, this lesson is largely wrong. Lax regulation was not a significant cause of the 1929 market crash or the Great Depression. The reforms themselves were at best a mixed blessing for investors. They included a few useful improvements to existing legal rules, but these were accompanied by more radical changes that harmed investors by reducing competition among investment banks, securities exchanges, and investment managers. The market failure narrative of the New Deal securities reforms includes two fundamental claims, one about disclosure and one about market manipulation. As a former SEC chair once put it, uh, investors supposedly bought new issues without seeing a prospectus and traded on the secondary markets without the benefit of ongoing disclosures. The Securities Act of 1933, the first of the New Deal reforms, introduced the notion of full disclosure to the securities markets. This is simply incorrect. Indeed, the irony of the disclosure provisions of the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 is that they largely duplicated existing disclosure practices for New York Stock Exchange companies, a point to which I'll return momentarily. The Securities Act brought about very little change in pre-existing disclosure practices. In fact, if a Martian uh, were to come here and read the Securities Act as enacted, uh, he would quickly and correctly conclude that it is a secrecy statute. It suppressed information about the company and the offering, except during specified windows and through specified media. The gun-jumping provision and the requirement for a waiting period, generally seen by securities lawyers as, uh, as just uh, parts of the technical details, uh, are both anti-disclosure. So why are they there? 
The solution to the puzzle is to understand how much investment banking practices changed during the 1920s. In prior practice, underwriting was divided into a distinct wholesale and then a retail phase. The leading investment banks, uh, organizations such as J.P. Morgan & Co. and Kuhn Loeb & Co. were exclusively wholesalers. They, brought, they bought newly issued securities from companies and distributed them through retail broker-dealers. And the managing underwriter exercised tight control to prevent competition among these retail broker-dealers, restricting where, to whom, and at what prices they could sell. The underwriting process was slow, deliberate, and tightly controlled by the managing underwriter. During the 1920s, new entrants such as the National City Company competed for business by offering more rapid distribution. They encouraged broker-dealers to fight for business by discounting prices and poaching other brokers' customers. They also created their own retail distribution networks to help them sell even more rapidly. The result was dramatic. The new entrants took business away from the leading wholesale houses, and by 1928, they dominated the underwriting business at the expense of the traditional uh, leading firms. The Securities Act reversed this upheaval by slowing down the offering process and reestablishing the managing underwriter's firm control over it. The ban on sales prior to effectiveness of a registration statement ensured that brokers could not take orders until the managing underwriter gave them the okay. The gun-jumping provision assured that retail broker-dealers were as much in the dark as their customers until the managing underwriter was ready for them to begin the selling effort. The separation between the wholesale and retail phases of an offering, which had largely disappeared in the 1920s, became a statutory mandate. The statute accordingly revived the fortunes of the old investment banking aristocracy who promptly regained their old positions on the top of the league tables uh, and drove many less established firms out of the market. By my calculation, the Securities Act increased concentration in the underwriting business, defined as the aggregate market share of the top five underwriters, uh, by 12%, controlling for the differing market conditions before, during, and after the Depression. Now let me turn to market manipulation. Although modern securities lawyers tend to emphasize the periodic disclosure system for publicly traded companies as the heart of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, President Roosevelt and his congressional allies saw the statute as a means to end market manipulation. A key conclusion from the PCORA hearings, which lasted for over two years and generated a great deal of publicity, was that manipulation was rampant on the New York Stock Exchange. The evidence of manipulation was the existence of so-called stock pools. These were temporary joint ventures among two or more financial intermediaries or investors to trade in a particular stock. Congress concluded that the pools were today what we would call pump and dump schemes uh, that bought heavily in order to create price momentum and attract unsophisticated investors whereupon the pool would sell out and the price would collapse. And if this all sounds like ancient history, by the way, um, it's quite frequent for modern commentators to refer to these stock pools when talking about current uh, regulations uh, regarding market manipulation. Why did PCORA 
the Senate Banking Committee's counsel and the senators on the committee conclude that pools were engaged in manipulation, largely because they found that the stocks in which the pools traded often increased in price. And of course, when the market crashed, they all fell in price along with uh, all the rest of the uh, stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. But no one ever asked the essential question, how did the pool stocks perform relative to the rest of the market? Uh, and as far as I can tell, I am the first person to examine that question. Uh, and the answer is interesting. The pool stocks outperformed the market over both the short and the long run. In other words, there was no pump and dump cycle. All the evidence points to the conclusion that pool operators did exactly what they said they were doing, which was finding undervalued stocks and buying them. Take my favorite example, Radio Corporation of America, which was purchased by several pool operators. Later writers, drawing on the Senate's investigation, called these purchases spectacular manipulations. And indeed, uh, from the end of 1926 to the spring of 1929, RCA's stock more than quadrupled in price. Yet, as the Senate's report takes pains to point out, RCA did not pay a single dividend during that period, nor did it acquire any new uh, physical uh, uh, assets or uh, real estate. In the Senate's view, only manipulation could account for this dramatic price rise. So did anything happen at RCA during 1927 and 1928 that might offer uh, uh, a, uh, uh, an alternative explanation? Well, it created a new national broadcasting network called NBC and began to deliver original content to millions of homes, generating advertising revenue and boosting sales of its radio sets. It acquired movie production and distribution businesses and began making talking motion pictures through its newly RKO Studios uh, subsidiary, which would go on to produce many of the iconic films of the 1930s. It experimented with an exciting new technology that could send pictures by wireless transmission, setting the stage for the development of television during the next decade. RCA had as good a run in 1927 and 1928 as any technology company has ever had. But this was all invisible to, the, to PCORA and the Senate because they believed that only physical properties were sources of value. So Congress's claim that the lack of regulation led to rampant market manipulation turns out to be demonstrably false. It also claimed that a lack of disclosure regulation meant that exchange-traded companies disclosed inadequate information, and what they dis did disclose was often misleading. This is a more diffuse claim, uh, but, but it is uh, susceptible to indirect testing. Here's the idea. Imagine that company A has very good disclosure practices. This means that traders will be well-informed and that dispersion in their estimates of the company's value will be low. Company B, by contrast, has poor disclosure practices. Traders will not be as well informed about it, and so they will vary more widely in their estimates of the company's value. Now imagine that the market learns new information directly relevant to the value of each of the two companies. We would expect traders to react more to the news about company B than about company A, 
because there was less previously known about Company B. To state it more precisely, if the same amount of information is released about each company, we would expect there to be more post-release trading in Company B's stock and for there to be a larger post-release price movement in Company B's stock. We can use this insight to ask whether company disclosure practices improved after enactment of the Securities Exchange Act. Companies traded on the New York Stock Exchange became subject to the Exchange Act's periodic disclosure system in mid-1935. So we can compare the market's reaction to earnings releases in early 1935, releases that came before the implementation of the Exchange Act, to earnings releases by the same companies in early 1936, which came after implementation of the Exchange Act. Earnings releases, by the way, were common then as they are today. They're press releases in which the company gives basic information about net earnings and earnings per share. The hypothesis then is that prior to the 1935 announcements, traders were in the dark because there was no Exchange Act periodic disclosure system. But by the time of the 1936 announcements, traders were well informed because of the implementation of that system. If that hypothesis is correct, we should observe larger price and volume um, reactions to 1935 earnings announcements than the 36 announcements. But in fact, both the price and the volume reactions are strikingly similar uh, in both years, suggesting that the background information available about companies did not improve after enactment of the Exchange Act. So I would interpret the disclosure provisions of the Exchange Act quite differently from the way that they are typically described. I believe they were a best practices mandate that forced the smaller regional exchanges to bring their disclosure practices up to the standards of the New York Stock Exchange. This, of course, they could not do. It was not cost effective for these small exchanges trading in the shares of small companies to invest in as much self-regulatory infrastructure as the New York Stock Exchange. And so the result was entirely predictable. At the time of the enactment of the Exchange Act, there were 41 stock exchanges in the United States. None of them had shut down during the Great Depression. But within two years after enactment of the Exchange Act, a quarter of them had disappeared. Once again, regulation adopted in the immediate aftermath of a financial crisis drove small firms out of the market, increased industry concentration, and gave investors fewer choices. Well, let's leave the New Deal and turn to more recent stock market downturns and their associated regulatory reforms. Today's reformers have a much harder job to do than the New Dealers because it is no longer very easy to say that US financial markets are lightly regulated. But as we will see, regulatory proponents are remarkably good at finding remote corners into which the regulatory light has not yet penetrated and declaring that the causes of stock market crashes can be found there. Following the dot-com crash of 2001-2002 and the Enron bankruptcy, Congress enacted the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. The market failure narrative declared that the paucity of federal regulation of auditing practices and corporate governance facilitated Enron's collapse. But it can't both be true that bad corporate governance caused Enron's failure 
and that the Sarbanes-Oxley Act is a recipe for, presenting, uh, for preventing future Enrons. Sarbanes-Oxley's corporate governance provisions codify a laundry list of what were, in 2002, considered corporate best practices, of which Enron itself was a faithful follower. That brings us to Dodd-Frank. Here again, proponents were faced with the extreme challenge of arguing that the failure of commercial and investment banks, which are among the most heavily regulated entities on the planet, was a consequence of lax regulation. They met the challenge by arguing that the crisis was caused by limited federal oversight of the over-the-counter derivatives market and the shadow banking system. The proponents, by and large, ignored the potential contributions of government policies to the subprime crisis. From 2002 to 2006, the federal funds rate was lower than it would have been had the Fed followed the Taylor rule. Federal housing prices encouraged mortgage originators to extend credit to households that would not have obtained credit under more traditional underwriting standards. To my mind, however, the biggest policy failure was that regulators and economic policymakers failed to see an enormous concentration of risk in the too-big-to-fail banks. Many commentators have noted the moral hazard created by an implicit government guarantee of the solvency of the too-big-to-fail banks. But the way in which that guarantee interacted with financial engineering in the form of securitization derivatives transactions uh, has perhaps not gotten sufficient attention. In theory, any financial innovation that reduces the cost of transferring risk should move risks to those parties best able to bear them, leading to a dispersion of risk within the financial markets and the economy. But unfortunately, this is not true when there are institutions that are known to be backed by an implicit government guarantee. Apart from regulation, what limits risk-taking by financial firms? Well, it is well understood that diversified shareholders may be willing to take extreme risks in return for the possibility of extreme rewards. But creditors see the world differently. They don't share in the upside. And so creditors have a, a, a real incentive to stop firms from taking on excessive risk. And short-term creditors have a, an important tool at their disposal to do that. They can simply refuse to roll over their credits uh, as they mature. But this mechanism uh, operates less powerfully, if at all, in a too-big-to-fail bank. If a catastrophic loss on investments wipes out the value of its assets, the creditors are protected by the implicit government guarantee. So the too-big-to-fail banks will take on risks that smaller banks would avoid. At first approximation, this is what happened in the run-up to the subprime crisis. Too-big-to-fail financial institutions were willing to hold large and highly leveraged positions in mortgage-related assets. So I would argue that the market failure narrative has it backwards. Secured, securitization, derivatives, and shadow banks did not create excessive risk. Instead, they allowed too-big-to-fail banks to take maximum advantage of their implicit government guarantee. The guarantee, not the financial innovation, was the root of the problem. Uh, but as is always true, the regulatory response gives certain financial firms a way to raise their rivals' costs. In the case of Dodd-Frank, banking regulators gained the authority to bring the shadow banks, which is to say all financial firms that are not already, already regulated as banks, under the supervision of bank regulators, who seem inclined to use that authority. A possible 
and dangerous outcome would be that institutions that serve different purposes than banks and that have different liquidity needs than banks, such as insurance companies and asset managers, will be regulated as if they are banks. Uh, and unfortunately, if subjected to bank-like regulation in order to economize on regulatory costs, uh, they may uh, be acquired by bank holding companies. As we know, during the financial crisis, we took a step in the direction of European-style universal banking as the largest investment banks converted to bank holding companies and are now regulated as such. If regulation of insurance, asset management, and other forms of financial intermediation raises their costs to the point where they cannot operate um, on a standalone basis, they will also migrate under the bank holding company umbrella. Once again, we see that what is from the public's perspective an unintended consequence of regulation is from the perspective of the leading firms in the regulated industry a hoped-for consequence. Thank you for your uh, kind attention. Good afternoon. I'm glad to be here and glad to have an opportunity to share my reaction to uh, Dean Mahoney's excellent book, uh, and hopefully that'll give him a chance to uh, share some of his thoughts to my reactions. So let me start by saying that regulating is really hard. Uh, even when the intentions of lawmakers are pure, uh, regulating to prevent certain activities, for example, uh, most relevant to Dean Mahoney's book, Fraud, uh, is difficult, and it's difficult because regulation so often, as Dean Mahoney has, has discussed, creates unintended consequences. So regulating fraud, for example, increases the cost to market participants, which in turn increases costs to consumers, and worse yet, sometimes cuts off services entirely to those consumers. Uh, also, even when regulation is seemingly successful, uh, it often becomes obsolete, either uh, because the market has changed or market participants have changed the way in which uh, they behave in that market. We certainly saw that with the seeming success of the Banking Act of 1935, which uh, for the banking world people like me is the Glass-Steagall Act. So of course, added to the fact that regulating is hard because it creates unintended consequences is the fact that the intentions of lawmakers are not always pure. Uh, so lawmakers can be motivated by self-interest. Uh, they can be uh, overly influenced by special interests. Uh, they can be seeking to increase their power. They also can be uh, attempting to deflect from past failures. In light of what I've just said, I've come to believe that in a sense I have the easiest job in the world. So as a student of regulation, a person that spends my life thinking about regulation, uh, criticizing regulation has to be some of the lowest hanging fruit. I mean, it's just too easy. And I often think that when I'm thinking about uh, writing my next article. Really, this is just too easy. Uh, but there's still good reason, even though it's easy to criticize, there's still good reason to subject regulatory regimes to close scrutiny, if only because we've devoted so many resources uh, to this endeavor. And Dean Mahoney's book really provides such vivid illustrations of the difficulty of regulation. And in addition, highlights the fact 
that even seemingly successful regulation can fall under scrutiny when we determine that lawmakers, uh, policymakers, simply got the facts wrong. So I want to uh, talk about sort of three categories of reaction that I had to Dean Mahoney's book. Uh, and they center on three themes, some of which he's already discussed somewhat in his uh, overview of, the, of his research. But it relates to this market failure narrative, Dodd-Frank, and then the future. So thinking about the market failure narrative. For uh, someone like myself who spent my career thinking about the regulation of banks, the idea of uh, attacking the public interest explanation for regulation with a more special interest narrative is quite familiar. Professors Macy and Miller back in the 80s uh, made names for themselves by undermining the long-held view that the Glass-Steagall Act, which separated commercial from investment banking, was motivated by a public interest that was going to restrict commercial banks from engaging in very risky securities trading. Of course, the idea that securities trading is any more risky than lending always seemed a little bit strange to me, but that was sort of the, the narrative associated with uh, Glass-Steagall. Macy and Miller uh, told perhaps a more plausible story, which was that that legislation was motivated by special interests of both investment and commercial banks, uh, which manipulated the crisis in order to uh, erect barriers to competition. Dean Mahoney's research extends that Macy and Miller hypothesis to a much uh, wider inquiry and really is revolutionary in that way, Sh showing not only the special interest motivations behind the securities laws, but also a, a stunning misapprehension of uh, market failure. Dean Mahoney shows that the lack of widespread fraud and market, market manipulation and thereby the lack of any real, real appreciable market failure uh, undermines the conventional wisdom supporting the passage of the federal securities laws. Uh, and his findings really made me wonder about uh, that market failure narrative in the more recent crisis. Uh, and, and in thinking about that, I think that the story is, is somewhat different, and so I'll share with you my reaction to that. So the market failure narrative that Dean Mahoney focuses on his, in his book really relates to asymmetric information. So the idea that securities markets can work most efficiently if everybody has good information, and that typically is the justification for disclosure-based, or maybe not disclosure-based, <laughs> regulations is that asymmetric information. Not so true with respect to the regulation of financial institutions or historically commercial banks only. The uh, market failure that is associated with the regulation of banks is negative externalities. So uh, banks generate negative externalities much like a nuclear power plant. I'll just use that analogy, uh, because when they fail, their operations have negative consequences that extend beyond the firm or the firm's shareholders. So, and in fact, as somewhat of an aside, I think it's important to keep in mind that even, we're so very focused on those uh, large SIFI banks, but even a very small uh, community bank can uh, generate negative externalities when it fails through uh, loss of jobs or other economic harms that can happen in the communities in which they operate. 
So that makes me think about market failure and the more, re more recent crisis and what Dean Mahoney's research can tell us or make us think about with regard to the most recent crisis. I think unlike what was happening in the 30s, probably we would all agree that there was a market failure uh, in the more recent crisis. So it wasn't a matter of telling a story of market failure when there wasn't one. I think the, uh, the trickier part of the most recent crisis is the cause of the market failure. So certainly we can point to institutions and their operations as the primary source of their own negative externalities. So if a bank is gonna cause, if the failure of a bank will cause a market failure, we can look to the bank to say that you are the cause of that market failure. But with regard to these very large banks that, uh, that Dean Mahoney has talked about, I think it's important to keep in mind that the government actually had a key role in uh, extending or exacerbating the negative exper externalities that can be generated through the failure of a very large bank. And it is, of course, due to the government's support the either explicit or implied government support that financial institutions uh, are perceived to enjoy and the funding advantage that they gain through that government support. And it really creates a vicious cycle. Banks that are perceived to have that government support can borrow more cheaply, they can grow their balance sheets larger. As they get larger, their need for government support uh, grows even more acute and so we end up in this uh, spiraling, vicious cycle. That leads me to think about our response and uh, Dean Mahoney's thoughts on the response uh, of Dodd-Frank to the most recent crisis. <clears throat> Despite the fact that uh, many provisions of Dodd-Frank are really disclosure-based, uh, we can even say that the much-hated resolution planning uh, uh, rules really are a form of disclosure. Much of Dodd-Frank is really about prudential regulation, both what we would call micro-prudential regulation and macro-prudential regulation. Micro-prudential regulation being regulation that seeks to protect the solvency of an inst ind individual institution, macro-prudential regulation being a form of regulation that seeks to uh, to uh, deal with potential externalities in uh, the dealings between institutions and in markets. In fact, I believe some of the most controversial parts of Dodd-Frank are the extension of a prudential regime outside of commercial banks. So we see very recently MetLife's designation by the FSOC as a systemically important non-bank financial institution, and we see their efforts to, uh, uh, to attack that designation in the litigation they've brought uh, against that designation. So in, in looking at Dodd-Frank, one of the things that uh, Dean Mahoney notes, and I think he's quite right, is that Dodd-Frank is very much less a rule-based uh, type of legislation and much more, uh, leans much more on a discretionary granting sort of system where agencies, regulators are giving, given quite a, uh, a bit of power. And I think that's absolutely true. But I, I have a different view of that in the, uh, in the historical sense. Uh, I would posit that it's always true 
that prudential regulation has always been very discretion-based as opposed to securities regulation, which tends to be more uh, a more rule-based sort of regime. And some of it has to do with the different goals of those regimes. So securities regulation is often relies very heavily on ex post enforcement to, uh, to illuminate or to, uh, to effectuate that particular regime. Whereas in bank regulation, we're much more focused on an ex ante avoidance of harm rather than a system of enforcement. And so I think in that supervisory ex ante kind of regulatory system, discretion by the regulators has always been seen as necessary. Uh, and in fact, in the SNL crisis, for example, the main uh, claim or uh, criticism of regulators at that time was their failure to exercise their significant discretion. And of course, we see uh, we see some of that uh, today. But in any sense, in a way, I see uh, Dodd-Frank's uh, prudential regime as really very retro rather than modern. We took an, an existing prudential system and we just slapped it on a whole lot of more firms. So I don't see it as, uh, as anything new and in some ways that is a large criticism of it. Uh, so that leads me to think and to, and to reflect on some of Dean Mahoney's comments about the future of both regulating and of bailouts. So with respect to regulation, I'm always looking for some bright light. Dean, Dean Mahoney identified the creation of the federal cause of action under the federal securities laws as a successful part of that regulatory regime. I don't know if he includes within that private securities uh, regulation. If he does, uh, I couldn't agree more because I think one thing we're missing in the regulation, in the prudential regulation of banks uh, and other financial institutions is the power of that private litigation to serve as a regulating mechanism that does not rely on uh, very large financial uh, uh, agencies to shape the markets and rather create incentives for uh, private parties and uh, to regulate each other and to, uh, to sue each other. I have lots of ideas about that if anyone's interested, but it's somewhat uh, outside the field of Dean Mahoney's book. Finally, what about the future of bailouts? I said regulating is hard. I think bailouts are even harder. So, Dean Mahoney includes many important lessons for Congress and policymakers. For me, I think the most important observation he, he makes is this, and that is that the government's most important function is probably not uh, the arcane rules that are going to come out of Dodd-Frank, uh, but rather what's going to happen, the behavior of law and policymakers in the next crisis. Will the government live up to the promise that we heard at the time Dodd-Frank was passed that there would be no bailouts in the future? I would like to think that in addition to the self-preservation motives that we know large agencies must uh, possess, that policymakers are often attempting to do the right thing in a crisis, and the problem is that it's hard to know what the right thing is. Uh, so when I try to be less cynical, I tell myself that the way to deal with that eventuality, how will the government deal with the next uh, potential bailout, I hope that in the next 
iteration of uh, a financial crisis, that policymakers will be better informed about markets and market players. Uh, perhaps there is something about Dodd-Frank that might be useful. Maybe we're getting better information through those hated resolution plans. Maybe the Office of Financial Research is, in, is gathering important data. But I do think that the better information that policymakers and lawmakers have, the better chance that we have that uh, those decisions will be uh, well supported in the future. And certainly the work of Dean Mahoney uh, makes an essential contribution to providing uh, better information to generate better decision-making in the future. Thank you. I now invite Paul to offer some brief remarks in response to Heidi's. Um, so, so thank you very much for those comments. Um, I, I actually find very little to um, disagree with, but, but I will make a few um, observations. Um, so um, the the first one is is about the, the 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 fundamental problem that it's very hard to do regulation well, uh, but we have to do it, and and that's why I'm um, uh, my my real message in the book is don't do it immediately after a financial crisis. Do it incrementally. Uh, as uh, uh, as as uh, uh, problems arise and as you see uh, things that need uh, that need to be fixed, I think in general financial regulations ought to have sunset provisions so that uh, we can rethink when um, uh, when when uh, we've had a little bit of uh, opportunity to observe them in action. Um, I do, by the way, think that, that uh, private rights of action were another success story in the original uh, federal securities laws. I think the problems that people often identify with securities regulation most of the times are problems um, of civil procedure, not of, of substantive um, securities law. Um, I, I, I also thought that the discussion of the, the differing underlying problems to be solved in securities markets and banking markets uh, was, was very useful. And the, the fact that there are um, negative externalities associated with the failure of a bank um, is what, after all, gives rise to the implicit uh, government guarantee. And, and it is like so many temptations that come our way in life, uh, in the short run it's wonderful because it prevents banks from failing in the short run, uh, but it makes the failure more severe when it happens. Um, obviously, I can't prove this. We can't run the experiment. But my sense of it is that had there been no such thing as too big to fail, uh, we might well have had a small crisis in 2006 rather than an enormous crisis in 2008 because it was already clear by late 2006 that subprime loans were not following the script. They were not behaving the way that mortgage loans typically behave. And uh, I think if uh, I had been a, um, a bank regulator uh, or a banker, um, uh, or more, most importantly of all, a creditor of a bank that was not too big to fail, I would have said, Let's rethink this whole subprime uh, strategy at, at that point in time, which may have caused 
of the crisis at, at a much earlier point and, and, and a much smaller crisis at, at that. Um, I agree also that the, the, the most controversial, um, and by that I mean the, the provision that is going to cause the most uh, uh, inter-industry uh, squabbling in, in Dodd-Frank is the extension of prudential regulation um, outside of uh, banks. Um, and, and I will treat that in, in, in connection with, with the, I think, the very important point, and, and I completely agree, that prudential regulation by its nature tends to be more discretion-based uh, than, than rule-based. And I think that uh, in itself is an important reason not to extend it uh, outside the banking arena. Um, what we don't want is a system that, that, that from time to time you see at other places in the world, which is a system in which all financial firms uh, simply can't do anything without going and getting the blessing from the, the relevant uh, ministry or, or regulator first. Uh, that's a, a, a surefire way to make sure that you, uh, that you do not have um, innovation and that uh, you are uh, essentially creating um, a large number of, uh, of, of uh, financial behemoths that uh, are not uh, in any sense nimble uh, or, um, uh, uh, or, or offer uh, uh, competitive prices. So thank you again for, for those uh, very useful remarks. Thank you. Um, well, I'd like to open the floor now uh, to anybody who might have some questions for either of our speakers. I ask that you wait to be called on. Uh, we have a microphone. Um, we hope that you'll wait for the microphone. And please state your name and your affiliation before asking your question. My name is Li Yang. Thanks for your presentation, and there are some good points. But I think there are some even basic than what you are talking about. One is the, the things, why the financial institution is doing wrong, and why is it going to be too big to jail? Because we ignore the government to prosecute them when they are doing something very minor, but it's a terrible fraud and crime, and we didn't really do it. Instead, we tolerate them for revolving door so they can get a position in their board or in their advisory or even some other industry, but they are really related. So they were penalized whistleblower rather than fix the financial institution. So I just wonder if we can really work together well, I think you can see the FBI director that can serve in the board of the financial institutions. So obviously, they will not do anything. So what we need is uh, citizens and civil organizations really have to change our concept of right from wrong. Otherwise, everybody organization lets us wait until the opportunity to be in the board. So there's got to be something we have to determine to fix the system. Can we do that? So, if, I mean, is there something structural we can do to change the relationship between the private sector and the public sector uh, from a management perspective for especially these too big, to, too big to fail institutions and their regulators? No, no, I mean, not just uh, 
public-private partnership, which is already being misused, abused. But we really have to have a citizen's determination, some kind of movement, really change it around. So I would just say that, that this, is one of, this is one of the many reasons that uh, regulation is, is so hard to do right. And, and that is that um, you've, you've, got to, you, you've, you've either got to have regulators who know a lot about the regulated industry, which presumably means that they come from the regulated industry and are planning to return there after they're done uh, with their stint. Or there are people who don't know very much about the regulated industry. They're sort of career, uh, sort of policy people. In which case, where do they get their information? They get their information from the regulated industry. And, and to me, this is just another reason to be very cautious about saying, I see a problem, so let's regulate to fix it. Um, you know, I think that's the nirvana fallacy, and, 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 and one of the messages that I'm hoping to get across is let's not be quite so quick to see um, uh, everything as uh, a problem that, that requires a regulatory solution. So I would add to that that I do think that we should always be thinking about better ways to monitor behavior that we would all agree shouldn't occur. So you're referring to, uh, you know, fraud. And uh, when I think of banks, I think about money laundering, you know, assisting money launderers and that sort of thing. And I think that there are some innovative ways to monitor that kind of behavior that we haven't employed, at least in the banking uh, world. So uh, for some of the securities people in the room, they know much more about this than I do, but there are whistleblower programs uh, that uh, assist in the enforcement of securities laws. There really isn't anything like that on the banking side. Uh, and I've uh, certainly thought about that over the years and thought about how could we create something similar, something like KETAM sort of litigation uh, that occurs in the procurement world? Could we use a system like that where, again, we rely on the power of private parties to monitor the behavior of private institutions? Um, I think those things are worth thinking about for the reasons that you state. Um, Jim Allen with CFA Institute in Charlottesville, just up the road from you. Should have carpooled this morning. Um, I, was, I wanted to ask you about what you thought of part of the Dodd-Frank that dealt with credit rating agencies. Because um, that, in many ways, kind of goes to what Heidi was saying about increasing the barriers to entry. The one thing that I think they, I mean, in many ways, all those things were great, you know, great disclosures. They had to put in uh, more controls on their, um, you know, on, the, on how they came about with their, their ratings and the like. The one thing that always appealed to us was the idea that they needed to do away with requiring um, that investors look to the rating agencies for a, an investment grade imprimatur that said this is okay to invest in because it was always sort of a safe harbor for those in those firms that they were that they were doing that and we still get uh, you know people that say that that was the wrong approach but our point was you as an investment firm you can still 
use that. You can still look to the rating agencies, just put it on your liability as opposed to making it a um, uh, regulatory safe harbor. Um, I, I, so yes, I, I entirely agree with that. I think the, the underlying problem was that there were so many rules enshrined in law and regulation that directed entities to look to ratings. Um, and and, and that's, uh, I, I think that's something that is uh, going to guarantee that whatever conflict of interest problems might be lurking uh, are, are going to get worse. Um, I do uh, also point out in the book that there's a, there's a lovely little irony in that in Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, the, the villains of the piece were the accounting firms, and the uh, response is to greatly increase the cost of being an accounting firm so that we're not going to see much new entry into that profession, uh, in, into the, the, the firm level. Uh, and in Dodd-Frank, the villains of the piece are the rating agencies, so what have we done? We've, we've greatly raised the cost of being a rating agency, which will make it harder for anyone else to get into the business. Yes, my name is Pedro Rowski. I'm not a regulator, but I've been involved looking at what's happening for quite a while, and I have three short questions. First of all, do you think it's possible to regulate an institution, a bank, whatever, without defining its purpose? Because nowhere in the thousand of pages that I've read from the Basel Committee or in Dodd-Franks or anywhere else, do they define what banks are for? So for me, that's sort of an impossible quest to regulate something that I not, do not know what it's supposed to do. Second, if we had an absolutely perfect information around, everyone would stay in bed because there's no reason to go up. One of the drivers of economic growth and movement, everything, is ignorance. It's blissful ignorance which pushes forward. How do we coincide those two areas of our want for good information and knowing that if we have perfect information, this game is over? And third, my third uh, uh, reaction is on the, on the differences between micro, micro uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, Microprudential and macroprudential. On the microprudential level, you are always trying to save an institution, single one. And then on the macroprudential level, you know that the faster that institution fails, the better it is for the macroprudential. How, how, do, you, how do you make those <laughs> two opposites mesh? Thank you. Uh, so uh, I love your question about the purpose and functions of banks. And, and I have to say that I think that uh, one positive thing that has come out of the crisis and that comes from too big to fail banks uh, is a sort of relatively new discussion about the uh, social purpose of large financial institutions. What, uh, how do they assist society as a whole? And, uh, and are we uh, utilizing them and getting the kind of 
uh, innovation, et cetera, from them that we would expect to get from firms that have such incredible government support. I actually think there is a technical answer to your question as well, which is that the banking laws do describe what banks do. And in fact, it's uh, a necessary piece of whether they're regulated. And that is that a bank provides credit and takes deposits. And I think that uh, one story of the history of bank regulation really does have to do with credit availability. Uh, so that when we try to, uh, my words are so shocking that it turned off. But, but the mics are still on. The mics are still on, so we can still talk. So we can talk. Um, uh, one sort of public interest way to look at some of the banking laws over the last 100 years is about the availability of credit and uh, forcing certain institutions to engage only in particular activities so that they will uh, be very focused on providing credit uh, to parties. And now I think- Can I make a yeah. brief point there, yes? If the purpose of banks was to make credit allocation into the real economy, mm -hmm. no regulator would ever, never ever have dreamt up equity, risk-weighted equity requirements. <coughs> which completely distorts that allocation. The reason we have credit risk weighted equity requirements for banks is because no one cared a yoga about credit allocation. So that purpose of the bank was mm -hmm. not present. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, I think we could debate about how the risk weightings uh, allocate credit, but I think you're right that it does, it, uh, the capital regulation, does distort the allocation of credit and not in a way that is necessarily serving the public interest. I think that is true, yes. So I, I want to make uh, just one quick observation about your point that in a world of perfect information, there's no trading and you know, so everybody just stays in bed. Um, you know, we, we securities lawyers just get all teary-eyed when we read Brandeis's stirring statement about sunlight being the best uh, disinfectant, and, 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 and we have read that as a call for full disclosure, and we securities lawyers talk about the securities laws as being about full disclosure. Interestingly, if you go and, and read uh, the, the full uh, book, uh, what, what Brandeis was really talking about is disclosure about conflicts of interest, uh, which is a very different thing. And I, I think, in fact, if you read the, the, the securities laws as first enacted, they were much more focused on uh, informing investors about the uh, compensation and other interests of everyone who was involved in the offering. And that seems to me to be a completely useful and sensible thing to do. Uh, the notion that we can somehow uh, equalize everyone's information does not seem to me to be a, a sensible or useful thing to do. Thank you very much. I think that's all we have time for uh, today. Thank you for attending. There is a lunch provided. Uh, you'll have to go up two sets of spiral staircase up at the top. Um, and uh, we thank you very much for being here. <laughs>